Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 909 flying through another morning, Monday, January 22nd, joined by Bruce Jenelson, professor of public policy, political science at Duke University. Our friend previously worked in the State Department and on the Middle East peace process. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? I'm good. Bruce, I I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on because it it means so much to have somebody that was in the room talking about these things, knowing the principles involved, knowing the stories behind the stories to give us some insight into this. It was on October 7th when Hamas made the ill-fated decision to attack Israel. Um, I guess we'll start there. What is the latest on the Israel-Hamas conflict? Yeah, I know we're over 100 days into that now since October 7th. Uh, which was an absolutely horrific day, no question. Um, but since then, I think that, you know, the Israeli response uh, in Gaza, uh, while they have achieved some of their goals of uh, killing and, you know, and, 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 and breaking apart the Hamas network, there's been massive suffering and killing, over 20,000 uh, women and children and other civilians, food shortages, disease. Uh, and so there's a real question in the world, and even with the United States, as supportive as we are with Israel now, uh, not just did Israel have a right to respond, yes, they did, but is, the right, is this the right response, not only for the people of Gaza, but is it really working for Israel with over 100 hostages still out there? So it's some big issues that are getting harder and harder. So 1,200 deaths in Israel, 25,000 in Gaza as of January 21st, according to authorities on both sides, 25,000 uh, in Gaza. Do you know the breakdown of how many were members of Hamas and how many weren't? You know, the estimates that you see from the Israelis and from others is that they've killed maybe about 10,000, 12,000 what they call Hamas fighters. And, of course, we don't totally know if they're actually fighters or people that might just be supportive of Hamas. But estimates are that there's over 30,000 Hamas fighters, and they've gotten some leaders but all these organizations, you know, you get a leader and somebody else emerges. You know, you can't sort of, you know, take them apart that way. Uh, so, you know, if you continue this on uh, at that rate, you know, the notion that you'll totally destroy Hamas, well, it might be an admirable goal for the Israelis. Uh, it's just not doable. And we, we've learned that, you know, our generals have learned that and our other people have learned that in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. You have to have another strategy uh, that's not just about the military component of smashing them. Um, a, a local man here was killed in Israel. Uh, he was uh, Palestinian. He was not a member, as far as anybody knows, uh, of Hamas. How, how, I don't know if you want to call it fog of war. I don't know if you want to call it um, 
um, not in attention to detail, but not really knowing what's going on. Uh, how, how does Israel determine who it is that they're shooting and who they're not? You know, to be honest with you, they're not being very discriminating on that. Uh, and, um, you know, the fog of war, there have been some Israelis have killed some of their own soldiers. They mm-hmm. killed some of their own hostages trying to escape in the fog of war. Uh, and so it's been a massive sense. If you look at some of the things that some of the members of the Israeli government have said, um, you know, these are all animals and, and all of that. And again, at an emotional level, you can kind of understand this. Uh, but you, I don't think you can really approve it uh, human to human and, and simply a strategy. It's not working. Some top Israeli generals are now speaking out against this, including one general who used to be head of the army and is now retired, who lost his son in the combat and lost a nephew. And he is saying this is not working for Israel. Uh, we need a strategy that can bring the hostages home, uh, that can have some other countries of the world working with us. And there are some um, reports now that Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Qatar are willing to work with the United States and others to try to you know, get this to a better place. Uh, and so you have some of Israel's own top strategists saying it's not working. What do we know about the hostages? Do, does anybody know about the number of hostages that are remaining and the condition? Or, or the demographics of them even, Bruce? Yeah, you know, the first release was heavily uh, women and children and some elderly, but numbers are 130-something, 140-something. It's hard to know, and it's not clear how many are alive. It's been over 100 days. Many of these people, you know, needed medications they're probably not getting, uh, and they're not being held in one spot. You know, clearly what Hamas has done is spread them out somewhere around the top leaders, so if the Israelis came after them, they would be hitting the hostages uh, some have been scattered. Gaza's not that big a place, but they've been scattered around. And the protests in Israel by both family members and others that say prioritize the hostages are getting stronger and stronger. People in the streets telling their own government, getting the hostages home has to be our highest priority, uh, and then we'll take it from there. How do Israeli politics factor into this for Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, you know, Netanyahu... Um, is under uh, at least three indictments. And many people, even people that are, you know, real strong supporters of Israel, you know, are highly criticizing him for saying he's putting his own political future and personal future ahead of his own country. Uh, He bears responsibility as any head of government does for October 7th, because October 7th wasn't just about, you know, the terrors of Hamas. It was about Israel being unprepared for some reasons that were very political. And he has members of his government who are even further extreme than he is, who've talked about the expulsion of all Palestinians from Gaza and the West Bank uh, and have been fomenting violence in the West Bank among the, the settlers who are extremists. So this is a more extreme government than even just calling Netanyahu you know, a right-wing person. There are some people in key ministries who frankly aren't qualified to be in those ministries, like Minister of National Security. They have no military, significant military experience of their own. It's a very problematic government, and that kind of explains in part the world reaction. Is there any negotiation going on for these hostages? Uh, Apparently there are. There have been more reports in the media uh, over the last, say, four or five days. Uh, And I I was over in England last week doing some of my own work, and I heard some of these over there about negotiations. There's one in the Wall Street Journal today, in fact, um, about, you know, negotiations involving the countries I mentioned before, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, and the U.S. working on a plan. And Qatar, which is a small country, is pretty key to this because they're the principal financial supporter, more than Iran of Hamas. 
Uh, and if they were to, you know, start to squeeze the money, they have a lot of influence. And they played a role in the first release of hostages. So there are negotiations, and it appears right now that the Netanyahu government has said, we're not interested flat out. That, that's you know, what I, is that was my question, Bruce, about the Netanyahu government and where are they involved with, with these negotiations and how integral—go okay. ahead. How important are yeah. they? Sorry, sorry. I mean, to, to me to interrupt you. You know, in, you know, like any negotiation, you know, you, you, you come to the table and you say, "Well, I don't totally agree with what you what you're proposing, so let's negotiate." Netanyahu has been flat out. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to destroy Hamas, and it's not working. Um, and what does he say about the hostages? You know, the hostage family is very critical to him. He hasn't, you know, made them a priority, and he hasn't done what leaders need to do in times of crisis. I mean, we've seen this from. The Republican and Democratic presidents in our country after 9-11, George Bush, uh, or after Katrina, you know, or other tragedies, Netanyahu hasn't really done that. He hasn't reached out to the families uh, in any sort of human, personal way uh, because he knows they're critical of them. And so his failures of leadership just mount and mount in ways that you know, really hurting his own country in some very, very sad and profound ways. Do you have any idea from from your knowledge of all of this what his end game is here? What he's uh, thinks he can accomplish, or what he can really accomplish, or what when he will consider it um, a, a victory? He says he wants total victory. You know, and you know, there's no such thing against terrorism. And um, he will go down in history now. He's now the longest-serving prime minister of Israel, even more than the founder of the state, David Ben-Gurion. But when the story of October 7th is told, even if Israel were to succeed in this war, you know, know, children in their textbooks and and high schools will read that the country was not prepared for October 7th. This didn't have to happen. Uh, Israel could have you know, could have, could have responded much better than it did and headed it off. And that responsibility is with the prime minister because he, you know, diverted uh, the military to the West Bank to help the settlers uh, because many military people were protesting in the streets and not going to their reserve duty because they, you know, were outraged by what the government was going to be due to their own society in terms of some of their civil society issues. So that paragraph's in, in the books no matter what he does, and I don't think he can handle that, uh, uh, sadly. I got a question here, Bruce, and I want to address it because I think it it is um, indicative of how a lot of the audience feels, and and it, it I think is is born maybe of not a lot of knowledge of what the situation is. It says it's called collateral damage, not a terrorist get out of the war zone. For people that feel that way and don't know the situation in Gaza, for the people there, give us a little maybe one hundred and one on that, if you would, please. Yeah, sure. The Israelis dropped, you know, flyers and sent messages. We're going to attack, and we're giving you a notice to leave. Well, think about that. You're a family with little kids. You know, where are you going to go? You know, there weren't even like humanitarian camps set up in the south of Gaza because there hadn't really been time for that, and the Israelis weren't letting the United Nations in in significant numbers to do that. Uh, and then your home is destroyed. Uh, and what about the hospitals you need to go to, whether you're, you know, pregnant or you're sick? Uh, and so collateral damage is one of those expressions that, you know, it, it's a euphemism, right? It takes away from the realities of it. Uh, and, well, and, and the and damage here. The other thing, Bruce, I was going to say is it's not a situation where you can just hop on the interstate like, you know, you're in, in, uh, in Dallas and you're going to head to Houston or anything like that, right? 
That's exactly right. And then as people moved south, the attacks kept coming south, and they got squeezed. It's a very small area, squeezed more and more in the further south, and that's where you've got the disease spreading, the food shortages. Um, so it's really not enough to say that, well, we told them to leave and, you know, you know, they had a choice. Well, not really. If not for the politics of Israel involved here, would, would this be considered more of a humanitarian crisis by the U.N. or by the United States or by other countries? You know, sadly, we've seen, you know, really terrible humanitarian crises in other parts of the world, in Africa and uh, parts of Asia. And frankly, the U.N. has responded better than other countries have. The U.N. High Commission on Refugees actually does a pretty good job. You know, we, we, we think of the U.N. critically because it goes round and round in, in its building in New York. But, you know, they've done a lot. And, and I think, yes, the, the U.S. has been trying to get a little bit of aid in, uh, but we have been criticized by the rest of the world because even when we say we're, we're pressuring the Israelis, they're not listening to us. And so it's kind of a hard position for us to defend. I think we, we want to understand it with, you know, the good guys and the bad guys, but it's not that simple, is it? No, and I also will say the reactions in this country and many parts of the world, uh, kind of the reverse side of what you asked before, you know, have elements of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are, there are worse things going on in the world, which doesn't justify what the Israelis are doing. But there's real concern about how much, you know, anti-Semitism has risen in this country from the left wing and the right wing. Uh, how many protests around the world are fed by the kind of anti-Semitism that, you know, that we've seen through history. And it's very, very worrisome because it runs deeper than just we don't like what Israel's doing. So, so all of these things are feeding into sort of a witch's brew. All right, let me take a break. We'll come back. I want to talk about um, what's going on with Iran and Pakistan, also the Houthi rebels around the Red Sea. Bruce Jennison's our guest. He's been there, done that, been in the rooms. Professor of Public Policy, Political Science at Duke University, previously worked in the State Department and on the Middle East peace process. If you have any questions or comments, we'll be glad to entertain them. The Oakland Jeweler Talk and Text Lines, wide open, 504-260-1870. Tommy Tucker back in a flash on WWL. Call from Mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Nine twenty-seven. Talking to Bruce Jennelson, our good friend, professor of public policy, political science at Duke University. Previously worked in the State Department on the Middle East peace process, so he certainly knows the players, the region, the the underlying politics, the backstories, etc. What, what is going on between Iran and Pakistan, Bruce? Boy, you know, it's like this region. We thought we had our hands full with Israel Gaza, and it's happening all over the region. You know, this this is not related to Israel Gaza. It was their own issues about. Iran accusing Pakistan of killing some of their people that were affiliated with them, and then Pakistan responding. 
Pakistan has nuclear weapons, not that right. you reach for them right away, but it makes any conflict that they're involved in more dangerous. Some of the reports coming out are sort of saying, all right, each side did their, you know, tit for tat, and maybe they're going to leave it at that. But, you know, there are so many explosive areas in the Middle East that it gets more and more frightening. Did this develop as a result of something along the border? Uh, no, it was more of a penetration. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like uh, say what's going on with India and China now up in the in the Himalayas, right on the border. It was more of, of different groups and different societies, and whether they're trying to you know subvert that country or just operating wasn't totally clear. So it wasn't at the border. Uh, it was it was you know more you know attacking people affiliated over, and, and it didn't happen right away. It was this was like a retaliation for something around happened a while ago. India. And China and Pakistan, all nuclear powers. Um, how concerned are you that one day cooler heads won't prevail? You know, I, I was a kid during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and mm-hmm. I still have memories of seeing President Kennedy come on television that night as a little kid and asking my parents if we were all going to die, and they told me to go to bed. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I remember that. And there's always Bruce, let me tell you, while you say that, you know, my age (laughs) is a closely guarded secret. But I can remember during that the lights going out and the the power going out and and us, our family, because we were Catholic, going out under the carport and saying the rosary. And we thought that was going to be the end of the world during that Cuban Missile Crisis. And people that did not live through it don't understand that. I know. I try to explain that to my students, you know, and I show them a little, you know, uh, videos from that period. India and China, I think, are actually. They've got a lot of diplomacy going on. Uh, they belong to some the same international organizations. I don't really worry about a conflict between them. India and Pakistan was really problematic back in the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s. They seem to have sort of tempered it as well. You know, so I don't worry about either. Worry about North Korea, which mm-hmm. is a, a bit crazy. Uh, and then you know you do got to worry about the Iran-Israel situation if it escalates to to that level. Um, let's talk about the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. What's going on there? So the Houthis are, uh, um, they're like this, a Shia sect. You know, they're not the same as Iran, kind of like the way there are different denominations and Protestant religions of this country. And they've been fighting a civil war in their country since about 2012 or so. And gosh, you know, back around 2015, they had the dubious distinction of the worst humanitarian crisis in the world in Yemen. You know, malaria breaking out, food shortages. And the Saudis were involved in that because they saw, saw the Houthis as an opponent because the Shia versus Sunni. And they got very involved in that war, a lot of bombing and stuff. You know, another situation where it didn't work very well. They drew us in, both under Obama and Trump. Uh, and then they finally, Saudis sort of backed out or withdrew, and the Houthis were governing. Uh, well, they're governing now, and they've been a rebel group. And so for the last year or so, They've had things to do like how do you pay civil servant salaries? How do you provide food for the people, right? It's not just who you're against but whether you can do it. And many people see this as as sort of a way for them to distract from their own problems uh, by causing international problems. And if we worry about inflation and stock markets here, uh, what's going on in the Red Sea uh, is very, very risky for us and everybody in the world. Let me get back to Israel and Hamas for a minute, if I can, because you mentioned – in Yemen, I forgot the disease you mentioned, but I know they have a big problem with hepatitis now in Hamas. If you will, Bruce, considering you know you spent your life studying this and and working in it, talk about um, the the dangers here of what's going on in Hamas with the ideology of hate, and that is if the people in uh, um, 
uh, uh, I'm, I'm confused here. The uh, people in uh, where were we? In Gaza. Gaza. Thank you. That's yeah, what. That's sure. thank you. I'm, I'm got too many papers in front of me. <laughs> people in Gaza didn't hate Israel before. This is really a, a great way. Almost like leaving water out for mosquitoes to breed. This is a great way to breed terrorism, is it not? Or, or to breed people yeah. that hate Israel? You're absolutely right. And, you know, there was a survey, a reputable survey done in Gaza uh, over the summer before the war started. And it found that over 60% of the Palestinians living in Gaza were opposed to the Hamas government. Okay? Because Hamas was spending money on missiles and not on food and jobs and health care. And, you know, part of what I think the Israelis missed here is you had a population that, particularly once you started to retaliate, you know, the, the first day after the war, the population will say, we hate Israel. And then the second day, they'll say, Hamas, look what you did to us. You made our, 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 our lives much worse. So it's not, you know, it's not clear, it's not, at all, it's not true that the whole population of Gaza, you know, wants to destroy Israel. They want, you know, life better for their families. And if we can get to the notion of a two-state solution, there was before this war a lot of support for that. And I think because, like you said, because of the way the Israelis have responded, they, you know, have turned many back against Israel and, and into Hamas's lap. Any final thoughts, Bruce? You know, uh, I wish we could have, you know, happy conversations about this, yeah. but, you know, maybe someday we can, <laughs> you know. You know that's not going to happen. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it'd be so, nice to think about, though. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Bruce Channelson, professor of public policy and political science at Duke University, previously worked in the State Department and on a Middle East process. And, you know, back in the day it was— uh, wars, uh, different armies wore uniforms, and now you're fighting ideas. And and when one government engages in another action that um, encourages ideas and ideology that is going to cause more problems, that's that's never helpful. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll lighten up a little bit. We'll talk with uh, Jeff Palermo, WWL.com, columnist, Louisiana Network News Director. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.